Watchers in the fourth dimension. This is a dead place. I made a mistake. I am to be punished. Adventurous and decadent, but rather pleasant. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Watchers in the fourth dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I am Riley. Last year I broke the back of a wolf with my bare hands. Most men fear me, so I have very few visitors. And as you can guess from Riley's intro, today we are discussing the fifth serial, The Keys of Marinus. As usual, we're going to start with talking through some of the historical context, most notably in this, about a month before this started being broadcast, Gene Roddenberry actually wrote his first 16-page proposal for Star Trek. It'll be another two years before it hits the screen, but the wheels are in motion for perhaps Doctor Who's greatest competitor TV show. In addition, we have the Vietnam War continuing to heat up. The civil rights movement is uh, continuing to trundle along in the US with Sidney Poitier becoming the first African-American to win an Academy Award in the category of Best Actor in a Leading Role. The Rolling Stones released their first album in the UK, so while we've been seeing Beatlemania continue to absolutely rage, we now start to see their biggest competition as well. Don, you'll be pleased to know that the Ford Mustang went on sale for the first time during this uh, story's broadcast. Outstanding. I know, I know you love your Mustang. In terms of the Cold War, LBJ uh, and Nikita Khrushchev are actually in a period of detente between the US and Russia right now, so that's all cooling down while China and Russia are kind of at each other's throats. And then finally, and I think quite appropriately for this story, we actually start to see some major progress in, in the world of computers and two mathematics professors at Dartmouth College actually run the first program written in BASIC. So let's move on to the actual story itself. Behind the scenes, we, uh, we have a script that was penned by Terry Nation. So he, of course, wrote the Daleks. He was brought in at the very last minute when a, a script from Malcolm or Mac Hulk, who will actually become a pretty familiar name to us later on in the show, fell through. And Terry Nation was brought in to very, very, very quickly write a replacement. He did a damn good job. And I'm pretty sure I read that the director, John Gorey, wasn't very happy with the script, but he's just wrong. I mean, Terry Nation had some pretty good sci-fi credibility before this. He'd written for Out of This World. He would go on to write after this for Out of the Unknown and the Avengers, and he would create like seven and Survivors before he finishes his career in the USA, contributing to three episodes of MacGyver. A strange shift there, but... <laughs> yeah. John Gorey, on the other hand, Riley, he, this is his first and only Doctor Who credit. There you go. There you go. And all he'd done before this was uh, some work on a soap opera called Compact, which I'm not sure if any episodes still exist, but apparently it was the only middle-class soap opera to exist in the UK, and generally people I've seen have been pretty negative about it. He'd later direct a few episodes out of the unknown, but yeah, he's not very well regarded amongst the cast and crew of this story. The incidental music comes from Norman Kay, who scored the first serial. Ray Cusick, who designed the Daleks, back as the designer. So with that, let's move on to our 10-second summary. Riley, over to you. The Doctor and the rest of the TARDIS crew are tasked by James Halliday, the creator of the Oasis, I mean Marinus, to find the golden Easter egg, which is locked behind five keys, which are scattered and hidden in different locations. The crew are hit repeatedly with pop cultural references as they race against others to find the missing keys. Wait a minute, did I just confuse this with a movie? Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> we start out with what appears to be the TARDIS crew actually enjoying their travels for a change. Yeah, I mean, they're coming off of Marco Polo and everyone is in a pretty decent mood. It's almost like the Doctor found his lost character development. <laughs> After Edge of Destruction. Right. Everyone was, yeah. they seemed happy to be together. The Doctor was cracking jokes. It really had a different feel to it. I, I very much enjoyed that portion of this. It's interesting because in, um, in running through corridors rob shearman actually talks about this and kind of touches on the reasons and he's of the opinion that basically the show's no longer on borrowed time they're not thinking oh my gosh we might only get a 13 episode run so they can actually write it where they're not necessarily looking to conclude everything so this enables them to write the characters with a bit more enjoyment and, you know, hey, they're just going to continue traveling. And I have to say that I, I really enjoy the, the miniature work. I mean, right there at the very beginning and the little TARDIS and the pyramid. And it's just really, it's, it's very quaint and enjoyable for the time period. Little boats. <laughs> yeah, the little, little submarines. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, they, they definitely look like, I don't know if it was a thing here, but in the UK, you know, dish soap used to come in more kind of cylindrical containers than it does now. And it looks like those were kind of made out of those. And speaking of using materials to make something else, I'm pretty sure I read that the Vord outfits are basically just modeled out of taking rubber wetsuits. But also I think they use pieces to create that kind of helmet headdress kind of thing this is the part where i pretty much copy and paste my comments regarding certain aspects of the costume from our dalek episode they're they're a bunch of latex fetishes come on look at them (laughs) (laughs) you're really not the first one to make comments about the board and bondage i i watched this and i actually did a little bit of research hide your shock and it turns out the guy that played it was later on interviewed about it by a leather fetish magazine so it's not just me It's a thing. I mean, was was this something that you found in your research, or did you just happen? To I found it in my research. I was like, okay, is, am I just crazy here, or what's going on? So I, I wish I could quote it, but the thing got rebooted and I lost it. That said, these are the most incompetent bad guys I have ever seen. They were so so terrible. I don't understand. How are they a threat? One of them managed to disintegrate himself in the trip over. <laughs> Another, and I had to rewatch this like three times to figure out what happened, apparently stabbed himself in the back while attacking Susan? Susan. Susan. But they looked so cool, though. That said, one of the things I noted going through this was, is this ethical? Because I thought about it, if this was made later on, Your entire plot is getting the keys to turn back on a machine that is essentially mind control. Uh, Ah, So, are our heroes really aligning themselves on the right side? So, you bring up an interesting point, because as this is the first time I've ever seen or heard about this one, I thought there was going to be some sort of twist where Arbitan was actually, like, the bad guy, and, like, the Mm. board were trying to, like, save everybody because they were like, don't be mind-controlled, but then that didn't happen. And so, like, that was some of my notes, is I was like, how do we not see, like, Arbitan is not a good guy? And apparently I was wrong. Because he he dies at the end of the episode anyway. (laughs) Arbitan, incidentally, just now we mention him, the the guy who played him, George Kalouris, he's actually quite accomplished. He was part of Orson Welles' Mercury Theatre of the Air. He had been in the the really infamous War of the Worlds broadcast and also had a a small part in Citizen Kane. So for the time and for a show that was this new, he was a pretty big name for this. And yet he was only in, unfortunately, only in one episode. Well, they could probably only afford him for one episode. And he died at the hands of a Vord. What an ignoble end. (laughs) Yeah. One thing I noticed is that there were some really good comedy beats in this episode. They arrive on this island with an acid beach. Susan nearly gets disintegrated, handled that fairly well. And Arbitan is like, oh, I need to get these keys. If only, you know, you guys could help me. And then there's what's clearly a cut to a commercial break. And when we come back, we have Ian goes, you know, I wish there was something we could have done for him, but oh well. So instead of taking that call to adventure, they they play it like a comedy beat. What I love about that, Don, is that cut to a commercial break you mentioned. It's just bad editing. This is the BBC. There are no commercials. (laughs) It's just terrible editing. It was written like a commercial break. Yeah. But I found that very funny. And then our good guy that they're helping out takes their ship hostage. Although we find out in the last episode, he apparently turned off the force field right after they left, which was really thoughtful of him. (laughs) It's kind of a dick move. I mean, just, you know. As if the conscience isn't terrible enough in itself in terms of mind controlling an entire planet. He then basically takes the TARDIS crew hostage and says, you're going to do what I want. He does. Here's one thing. We're going back to to the writing of Terry Nation. I like his scripts. They're fun. They're adventurous. They kind of fall apart if you think about them too hard, but they still work. So what you're basically saying, Don, is uh, Terry Nation is the 1960s Chris Chibnall. Yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be quoted on anything. Good call. I think that's one of the interesting things about this script is having split the TARDIS crew from the TARDIS, Arbitan then gives them travel bracelets to go in search of these keys to reactivate the conscience. 
And then every single episode, Terry Nation has to basically split the crew from their travel bracelets in order to keep them in a place for a certain amount of time. And he was successfully uh, able to write a nice couple days off for William Hartnell. And for some of the other folks, like there was the one episode that was pretty much Barbara and Ian. Yeah. Before we move on to the Velvet Web, I want to hit on some points in regards to the Sea of Death. This is the beginning of what I like to call in the making Ian dressed in the most ridiculous way possible based on his circumstances. Yes. He will now from here on will constantly be dressed out of the environment or out of the culture, or out of the time, the space, whatever. He will just be wearing something completely at odds with wherever he is. And it's hilarious and it's funny. And I think they did that intentionally for comedy or because they really disliked the actor and they wanted him to dress him ridiculously. Through this story, he's basically still wearing his Marco Polo costume the whole yes. way through. I was just going to say that makes me so happy to hear that that's going to continue because I did have a comment about his wardrobe. Secondly, you just have to love the old Scooby-Doo door revolving trick on the pyramid, you know, to get them inside and get them separated. Speaking of getting them separated, I love that as soon as they get up there and decide to go looking for Susan, the doctor suggests that they split up. And I was just sitting there going, well, this worked well with the Daleks. <laughs> well, see, they weren't thinking straight because they all had radiation poisoning. Oh, true. I guess lessons have not been learned. I believe it was also pretty interesting is that in, in The Sea of Death, the Doctor actually gives a complimentary comment about Ian. He says that Ian is very resourceful. And I think that's like the first time I've actually heard the Doctor say something, mention a good characteristic or something that should be praised about Ian. Yeah, he's definitely done a good job of praising Barbara before this, but I think he might be right. This is his first time being complimentary about Ian. Julie, you were talking about Barbara at the end of the episode? Yeah, just again with Barbara driving the plot along. And it is the unfortunate, like, oh man, something's happened to Barbara. Like, this always seems to happen to her. But it's just that very standard first episode. Oh, hey, look, something's happened to Barbara. Looking over, like, each particular episode, Barbara is... is the person that gets things done. I mean, she is the hero of this entire serial. She's been the hero of the show so far. She's definitely the hero, but it's just interesting how typically what ends up happening is in that first episode, it seems like she's the damsel in distress, and then she goes and actually makes everything happen. It's a pretty interesting subversion of that kind of damsel in distress trope. Barbara's just badass. She gets things done. So I think we were talking about now the next episode the velvet web in every single previous episode when it comes to the the title card that says the name of the episode it's after the title sequence this is the first time we see the episode name actually over the title sequence oh just a huh. extremely nerdy little tidbit there but sorry carry on Julie was saying that it's kind of funny how we have like that separation of like oh no Barbara is separate from us and then like we find her at the start of the velvet web and she's just living it up, you know, just having a great old time, not in distress and just having, you know, just enjoying herself. Don, was it you that made the point about there being an extraordinary amount of time having passed between them? It's, it's very there? inconsistent because in the in the first episode, he says these will let you to travel through space, but not in time. Barbara leaves like 20 seconds before everyone else. And has had time to meet these people and be completely pampered and eating grapes and, and all this stuff. Long enough to have a, a dress fitted, made, and get changed. That was actually something I found in a lot of the these episodes. Was you would have you know your standard cliffhanger at the end, but then when it picks up, there's a, a weird difference in time. It never seemed to flow terribly well. Yeah, because like. There would probably be arguments made because, you know, there's a little bit of mind control that happens. And so like, well, what if other things had to happen in order for that for that to occur? So like even that wouldn't really excuse why it happened within that 20 seconds. So, it's, it's almost yeah. as if this was written in a hurry and they're making it up as they go along. <laughs> Funny how that works. But anyway, we, we get to, to Morphotin, I believe it was called. Something to that effect. Yes. And everything seems happy and luxurious and all is right with the world. And continuing the theme from the first episode, it's, it's all mind control. And we have one of my favorite things in all of old sci-fi, and that is brains in jars. Spoilers. Yes. With yes. big eye stalks. 
Eat your heart out, John Carpenter. <laughs> I always enjoy like the the false paradise trope done in like sci-fi. It's so enjoyable. I don't know why I love it so much, but it and it works in this. I I really liked how they ended up doing it because like the perspective of Barbara versus everyone else and having the wardrobe changes and I just thought they actually did a good job of putting a lot of effort into that. I was really enjoyable about when they did the POV shot of Barbara and how like here's the rest of you know Doctor and Ian season like looking at the camera we're looking through Barbara's eyes and they're like what are you talking about everything's fine this is great it makes the audience feel a sense of paranoia when you have like people looking at you questioning you but the only thing that i disliked about it is that when they did the pov shot when they cut back to barbara could have put her in rags because everyone else was dressed in rags but she still wasn't or or something where they were all not dressed in rags and they were all dressed nicely and it was only until she got to the hallway did barbara then get put into rags well, no, I, lo- I love it because it's almost like we see the rest of the TARDIS crew from Barbara's POV. But at that stage, when we look back at Barbara, we're seeing her from the rest of the crew's point, point of view. They all see her in this gorgeous dress. Did, did anyone else get the feeling that they were setting Ian up to be the one that realizes it's all fake? Yeah, because he was very cynical at the very beginning of that episode. It was a good little turnaround there for it to be Barbara instead. So, and all of this, of course, was done because a slave fails to put a stone properly on Barbara's head. So the woman who puts the devices on their heads, she doesn't blink at this point. Her eyes are just wide the whole time. And I thought that was a a pretty nice touch of showing that she wasn't normal. Yeah, as Don was saying, the creature design, it's the classic, but it works. And I also like the fact that you only see the back of them. Obviously, because if you would have saw the pupils, they would have not looked disturbing or terrifying. They would have looked ridiculous. I know in the 21st century, brains in jars is a, a little cliched, but do you guys know if this would have been, if this was a big trope in 1964? Yes. Or was this, yeah. it, it, it already it, was? In 1950s, okay. 1940s, maybe not necessarily in like really major pictures, but a lot of B movies would have been doing it. And I think you look at the structure of the story and it's it's very very clearly based on B-movies at points. It's very clearly based on things like the Flash Gordon serials. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing. But I mean, when you talk about those tropes, it doesn't surprise me that they're cropping up. So we've met the brains, and then we go back to some of the brainwashing. And and you guys mentioned that this uh, these first couple of episodes were really, really funny in parts. And I think seeing the Doctor and Ian marveling at the laboratory, and we're left with the perspective that it's an empty room with a mug. I think it's magnificent. I it, it was just, I was sitting there laughing. I was just happy to see the Doctor and Ian both having like... A nerd out moment? Yeah, they were just like, <laughs> I've never seen them both so positive and excited together. And so because Barbara's realized everything is awful, she runs away, gets trapped, bumps into Sabitha, who has also been in prison because she failed to properly condition Barbara. And Barbara, driving the plot forward, she sees that Sabitha has the key and tries to break her conditioning. And it turns out that Arbitan is the one who sent Sabitha. So things are aligning pretty nicely here, pretty conveniently. Don't forget Altos, the Freshmaker. This is where he comes into play. He also was sent by, I want to call him Arbitron, but that sounds like a giant, like, special, like, screen at a large sports stadium. The Arbitron. That just shows random arbitrary pictures, whatever they are. <laughs> the Arbitron. <laughs> anyway, can I, can I point out that I, I, uh, I, I really enjoyed Barbara just wrecking, just wrecking oh. the brains. Wrecking them. It's <laughs> so beautiful. I don't think we've ever seen that much rage at once by any of our characters till then. Yeah, and the the reaction of the brains, I mean, the, the scream as she destroys them It's pretty is, disturbing. It's haunting. Yeah, it's kind of messed up. Did we ever learn why they were trying to control everybody? That's just what brains and jars do. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the in-story explanation is basically they transcended their mortal bodies and basically needed people to serve them and do things like ensure they have nutrition that's a bit of an evolutionary misstep in my opinion if you need other (laughs) things basically the the real explanation is terry nation had a cool idea of brains in jars and needed to somehow make it work oh but i have so many questions i have so many questions we're still in the this is being made up as they go along. Okay. Okay. 
Sorry. I think it is at this point of uh, the Velvet Web where we get to what to me is the most irritating part of the entire serial. Here we've gone through this disturbing and practically a nightmare for Barbara. She pulls through, saves the day. Everyone else is oblivious. And at the end, the doctor gives her any bit of thanks. Terry Nation was on a deadline, okay? He doesn't have time for your thanks and all that kind of stuff. He's got to move on. Now, I will say this. That's how that episode ends. But you've got to admit, the beginning of The Screaming Jungle is a textbook example of efficiency in plotting. We go straight to Susan freaking out about something. We don't even have to see it. We just, there it is. We get that over with. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But before we even get there, Billy Hartnell's off on his holidays again. So the doctor goes on two jumps and conveniently misses the screaming jungle, except it actually turns out to be three jumps. Yeah, there's multiple jumps. And then like, again, the, hey, let's split up. And then Susan, having learned absolutely nothing from Barbara, jumps ahead before anyone else does. So, you know, it's a nice contrivance for the cliffhanger. And all she gets is an immediate opportunity to freak out. I found with the, with these episodes, Susan became a lot more tolerable if I just imagine she's an eight-year-old girl Actually, instead that of a help. teenager, yeah. because that's what she's written like. She is written like a child. I mean, I, I think it's telling that when we get the, the Doctor Who and the Daleks movie, she is basically an eight-year-old. I mean, they have a child actor playing her. It says it all, really. I really wish they'd given Carol Ann Ford more to work with. As it comes to the Screaming Jungle, in Running Through Corridors, Rob Shearman actually wrote, Carol Ann Ford is very good this week, in spite of the fact that she's largely required to shout a lot and blub. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost oh. every week. <laughs> what? Oh. Oh. Yeah. So let's move on. So, Screaming Jungle. I believe it is here where Barbara and Ian face another Scooby-Doo trap in which... The idol, which is what she believes is holding the uh, key, is holds her in place and does the old swirly door trick. You're you're also jumping a little bit ahead here. There's a lot of stuff that happens before that. Oh, that's true. Because we have more splitting up, and then Ian telling Barbara, "Hey, don't touch anything because you're a woman. You can't do it." <laughs> and then Barbara saying, "You know what? We're gonna do this anyway, Susan." And they found, then they find the idol. So like, there's a good bit of like the women just being like, you know what, let's just not listen to Ian and do what we want. I actually wrote <laughs> good for Barbara in my notes at that point. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, don't let Ian tell you what to do. Ian tells them what's best for them. Barbara runs off and because she disobeys gets properly punished. That's what you're saying. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas my notes is like, I really hope this isn't related to the tree in Evil Dead. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, of course, the reason Barbara does kind of fall into the trap is because she finds what she believes to be the micro key. But it's not. Dun, dun, dun. Of course, she hands the key over to Sabitha, putting all of their eggs in one basket, given that Sabitha has the first key as well. Ian sends Susan off to the next stop with Sabitha and Altos while he goes off to go and rescue Barbara. Some more splitting up, yet again. And then Sabitha only realises that the key is a fake after Susan and Altos have already left. So she has to go on to let them know while Ian goes to rescue Barbara and find the real key. So we actually have a fairly nice basically two-hander with Ian and Barbara and one extra for the rest of the episode. Despite the mistake everyone's splitting up, after Barbara has disappeared and he realizes that they don't have the right key, he makes the right call. Sabitha mentions that, well, if she is trapped, she has a wrist transport. She could just make the next jump. He's like, well, let me go through it anyway. There's no point in me doing the jump now and just in case she's behind the idol and in danger. It's good to see like our characters planning things out in a logical sense instead of just splitting up all the time. Yeah, that's true. This is where we meet Darius. Darius is being played by a gentleman called Edmund Warwick, who would actually later appear as a double for William Hartnell in The Dalek Invasion of Earth and The Chase. Interesting dude is Darius. Darius suffers from the 
my dying words don't need to be direct. They must be a riddle, <laughs> which is something that a lot of people in film and TV have a problem with doing. He doesn't really need to go to the extent of giving the chemical formula clue. You could just say, it's over there in that jar right over there. Grab it. Get the hell out of here. The thing I love about Darius is he's filled this place with traps and he's apparently told Arbitan this and then says only those warned by Arbitan could avoid them. And Arbitan didn't bother to warn anyone. So <laughs> I think he just wrote Arbitan like a letter and Arbitan, whatever, just ignored it, just didn't care. Or it was like an encoded one because he always speaks in riddles and Arbitan was just like, I'm not gonna, no. He had no idea what it was. Darius is just his puzzle-obsessed friend and <laughs> Arbitron just doesn't, like, whatever, dude. I don't care. Just take care of the key. <laughs> oh my gosh. And the best he could do is just hide it in a drawer. <laughs> On, on a side note, I thought the work done by Norman Kay and the Radiophonic Workshop on this episode was phenomenal. The way the jungle screeches. Oh, uh, oh. oh yeah. Really creepy. Mm. Obviously, Ian, being the chemistry teacher, realizes it's a chemical formula, finds the jar, gets the key, and they're like, okay, we can leave now. And they get to this frozen wasteland, and Barbara is quickly unable to function in the icy climate, far faster than Ian, who seems to be wearing far less than her. She succumbed too quickly. It was, there's no way. I got the feeling there was another time jump there. That was the only thing I could figure out. It just seemed way too quick. So um, we're into the snows of terror. This is the ice level of Super Marinus Brothers. Yes, it is. <laughs> we, just had the, we just had the jungle level. And we meet Vesor pretty quickly. This guy is great. I don't, I don't know what you guys are going to say about him. This guy... So friendly. So friendly. <laughs> he just... He gets a bum rap because, you know, he lets these strangers into his home. And how do they repay him? Come yeah, on. I mean, he, he helps them out with their frostbite. Yeah, he teaches them how to get past frostbite with, with a really nice, slightly sensual hand massage. There's nothing creepy yeah. about that. <laughs> okay. You know what? I'm just not... I'm, I'm, no. No, no, no. No. I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to say no. Just no. But I haven't even I made any innuendo about exploring caves yet. You can't stop us now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> In all honesty, I, I love this character. I This is the classic, oh, this is our friendly Good Samaritan character who is actually terrible and evil. <laughs> what, what I find interesting about Vesor is nasty characters that we've come across so far in any point up to now in Doctor Who, they've all had, you know, some motivation. You have Cal, who genuinely believes what he's doing is right. You have the Daleks, who just want to live. <laughs> and, and then you have Vesor, who is just nasty for the sake of being nasty. You know, there's, there's no real motivation behind it. He's just awful. It becomes, as you say, it becomes uncomfortable very, very, very quickly. There's that point when, after Ian goes off in search of Altos, Susan, and Sabitha, he puts his hands on Barbara's shoulders and says, there, we are alone. And it's just immediately creepy. I had some issues with this, like just watching it, just it made me very uncomfortable. It really, really did. <sighs> I wanted to take a shower after I was done watching that, this episode. It was just, ugh. I mean, I've, I've actually got in my notes, Vazor's rapey vibe is one of the nastiest things that we've seen in the show so far. 100% agree. When you think about all the threats that they've had so far, you know, the worst thing that could have happened is any of them could have been killed. But, you know, if you're killed, it's kind of an obvious thing to say you don't know anything about it afterwards. We have a show that's being run by Verity Lambert, and I think this is almost made with the perspective of the worst possible thing other than death that could happen to a woman is being raped. And I don't know whether that was done deliberately to give a sense of threat to Barbara, or whether it was to establish something really nasty about Vesor and the type of person he was, or whether it was just Terry Nation's completely oblivious as to how uncomfortable this all is. But I, I feel like there's almost a, a very deliberate thing that's being said about Vesor, his character, and the threat to Barbara there. I don't think that a Terry Nation was oblivious to it. I think that mm. it's it's pretty heavy-handed. You could probably uh, get that same message across without being you know so obvious about it. 
in a drama, you know, if you want to do something serious and, you know, you can be serious, but just as long as you're handling it well. And I don't think that they necessarily handle it in a poor way. It, it effectively creeped everybody out. So I don't think it was done cheaply no. uh, for the character. I mean, whenever there is a, a heated discussion about Doctor Who, someone always brings up the argument of it's a kid's show. And I'm like, well, it's a kid's show, but it's also not a kid's show. That's kind of like saying that a Pixar movie doesn't have any themes targeted towards adults. There's some, there's always something more. You know, the way it makes us all feel incredibly uncomfortable. I think it's really saying something in, in a very visceral way around women's rights. You think about it, the women's lib movement didn't really start until the late 60s. So we're at best three, maybe four years before that. The way this is handled, I mean, if you can watch this and not feel uncomfortable, not feel terrible about the fact that women are put through this, you're not, you're not, you have no emotions. It's that scenario where other than a little bit of the creepy hand rubbing, you know, that whole thing, but it's like the seemingly nice guy who took them in, saved them from the cold. And, you know, that's something you shouldn't have to worry about. And you're just like, all right, I'm safe now. And then it like turns on its head. And that's a very real scenario for a lot of women. You'll never meet a Dalek, but there are Vazors everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Even beyond that, I mean, he's Ian's gone off in search of everyone else and he has put meat in Ian's bag with the aim of attracting the wolves. He's left Altos out on the mountain to die of basically exposure. On top of everything this is saying about rape and rape culture and, and things women have to do, he's just being established as just the most terrible person we've come across. And he left Susan and Sabitha in the cave. Yeah. No, he's just kind of crazy. I think there's something else going on because of his reactions in some of the rest of the episode. It's like something has happened to this guy while he's been living here. All I know is that he really hates wolves. Speaking of the wolves, <laughs> I don't really know how to move us on from a very uncomfortable topic. So I'm going to go with the wolves. Ride that wolf, Anthony. Ride. <laughs> <laughs> Which would make a great metal album cover. Anthony on top of a wolf riding. You can look forward to my debut album, Ride with the Wolves, in uh, <laughs> December 2029. I honestly thought that the way they were established as a threat, Vesor describes there as being more than ever. We're given some stock footage of wolves, which I, in some quarters, is criticised. I actually thought they blended that quite well. What do they expect them to do? Go, like, put live wolves on set? So, yep. so of course, we, we cut to... Susan and Sabitha are in the caves. Guess what? They passed the Bechdel test because they didn't talk about a guy. We have now we now have two stories running where we've passed the Bechdel test. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. And say we have Susan blowing on the dead ashes of a fire, which I thought was unintentionally hilarious. She clearly wanted a skull. <laughs> I was going to say, when, when Ian said in the very first serial, you know, the fire maker is the least important person because we all know how to make fire, or that might have been the doctor that said that, clearly Susan has no clue how to make fire. <laughs> no clue. They also, like, were, like, ran out of firewood, so hold your horses. If they don't have anything to catch on fire, then you can't make fire. That's true, although, again, I just don't know what she's trying to do by blowing on the ashes. I, I think that's probably John Gorry's fault. You know, they should have been dying embers rather than literally just ashes. Much as I'm mocking this, I, I think that was a directorial error. You know, interestingly, in this scene, we have Sabitha immediately taking the leadership role. Not, not Susan, who's established as being from, you know, a more advanced culture than our own. You would think she would know a thing or two, having been traveling in time and space. But no, Sabitha steps up and takes a leadership role. I like Sabitha. She's a fine character, written very strongly, and I think she's stronger than Altos. Oh, absolutely. So in the meantime, Ian comes back. So Ian finds Altos, goes back to the hut to rescue Barbara, and they force Vesor to take them to Susan and Sabitha. And we start seeing some more of the caves. Did anyone else think the caves were really well realized? 
Yes, they were. Or at least the icy parts. Once we start getting a bit deeper, I was kind of sitting there thinking, wait, is this the same cave set as we saw in the Daleks? If it was, it was shot so differently that you wouldn't really, it didn't really stand out too much. The lighting was different and the staging was different of a few things. So yeah. But we are learning Terry Nation is apparently quite fond of caves. <laughs> and jungles. We, we, we started out with a, a uh, destroyed forest or a petrified forest in, in the Daleks, and we've had a screaming jungle. We've had caves in both stories. Within the caves, as we go deeper and deeper looking for the key, we get some frozen knights. I love these knights. One, I love how the blocking is of the knights and the frozen block and the, the I guess it was like a faucet uh, for the hot spring. It's just so very video gamey at this point in particular. And I especially enjoyed how they moved after they were disturbed. Though I wasn't too certain about their costuming because I could not help but think of the Knights of Me. I actually think you'll find these are the Knights of Eki 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 Pateng! <laughs> I, I was almost expecting someone to make a comment about Indiana Jones as it relates to finding some knights in a cave. I was trying to think of something else because like it was either Indiana Jones or there could be something else escaping my memory, but kind of like, cause they were slower moving. They didn't speak and th things like that where it's just like not quite Monty Python, maybe more Raiders, not Raiders, Last Crusade. So in the meantime, our TARDIS crew go along a bridge, a rope bridge and decide let's let Vaser go last. So he, rather than crossing it, just destroys it and lets out a magnificent evil laugh because he's- And evil. because Ian was stupid. <laughs> yes. Stupid decisions made all around right there. So Ian has to fight the Ice Knights because he is the male hero, trademark. And, you know, we, we, we see them leaving the cave and running away from the knights. Does anyone think there should have been more tension in the chase? I was sitting there feeling very underwhelmed. The, the knights themselves weren't really, they didn't seem much of a threat. I mean, they didn't even stop them from getting the key. If they had been paying attention, there would have been no problem whatsoever. Get the key, leave, done. I think what ended up happening, too, is that Susan had that really great dramatic scene where she's, like, trying to cross uh, on the thing. And so, like, when you have, oh, this chasing with these knights that haven't really done too much versus, like, Susan almost falling to her death, I see her stuff as being a little bit more brave and life-threatening than what Ian's doing. I was actually very impressed with Susan in this one. You're actually doing something to try to get everyone to escape. That's great, Susan. Yeah, it's something like they figured out something useful for Susan to do, and Carol Ann Ford comes in and she owns it. So they escape, they make it back to Vasil's hut where they confront him, get all the keys and the travel dials back, and then he is standing by the door and... Stabby, stabby. Killed. So he kept on like yelling as if he knew that they were around. So like how would like it just seemed very it just seemed very interesting that like whenever he was like freaking out about the caves and like he didn't want like the those things around. So I'm just like, do they ever come up to life at other times and he's seen them before? Or is it just like a legend that he knows about? I wanna know. I have questions. Did anyone else kind of wish that rather than him just standing by the door? And getting stabbed that he had you know made a an approach towards them as if to kind of hold on to one of them as they're about to leave and that barbara had pushed him back and then he got stabbed yeah i mean that, that, yeah that, that, that probably would have worked better yeah and it would have been a more satisfying end you know after his actions towards barbara i don't know this is sort of a, a classic ending where your bad guy meets his end due to his own ignorance or villainy rather than yeah. any active part because that way you don't have oh, your yeah, hero yeah. murdering them it happens completely yeah. because of their own actions yeah i think i just would have preferred to see you know barbara already got to like destroy the brains and, and everything so like she can lay off the killing for a little while yeah and speaking of uh, this entire serial we can't chalk up anyone to the ian death count <laughs> Actually, we go into a cliffhanger where they move into the next place and Ian finds a dead body. Speaking of, of lost episodes, I couldn't finish the serial because mine had been overwritten by some sort of Law and Order episode in black and white. <laughs> I think you're incorrect. I think what you're talking about is that it would actually turn into a Matlock episode because there was this old man who was a defense attorney and then he went back and solved the crime to get his, you know, client off. I had taken a lot of NyQuil at the time, so that may be true. 
it was pretty strange because I I was kind of confused by that as well. I was like, I when did when did Andy Griffith play the first Doctor? <laughs> I I don't remember this. It was the American but, Doctor um, Who pilot with Andy Griffith as the Doctor? <laughs> I would have watched that all day every day. <laughs> I love this, me some Andy Griffith. So I I don't care. I'm counting this in the Ian Murder counts, and we will come to those metrics at the end. <laughs> So he's caught at the murder scene, he's captured and put on trial in a culture where the law is guilty until proven innocent, which is lovely. Convenient. Very. Yeah. We have our first instance of something that is dangerously close to a Terry Nation trope. As we get later, we'll eventually find out his affinity for characters who are called Tarrant, with a T on the end. And here we have a guard named Taron. So uh, we're, we're getting there with the nation tropes. We're seeing the early development of that. I gotta say that the uh, police department here in this world puts the LAPD to shame. <laughs> Yeah, and this also seems to be where Ray Cusick just gave up. Did anyone else notice the, the phone at the beginning of the episode that is just a standard 20th century Earth phone? Good, good job, Ray. They run out of time. And, and sadly, it's kind of indicative of this serial. It seems to be running out of steam at this point. Oh, uh, at this point, when the, yeah, when you're when you're doing we're doing a, a trial episode, you definitely are like just throwing everything. Like I said, this is an a serial where it's like, what can I pull out of my bag? Just what's everything that's been used? What's all my little tricks? Let's do it. Let's just get it out there. I don't care. Let's don't worry about subtlety. Let's just get it out there. There were a couple things I liked about this episode. I like the shocking turn of the wife because I fully expect them just to have her be, you know, a crying machine. So I, I kind of liked them making her a bad guy. And I really liked William Hartnell's performance. Yeah, he... Hartnell showed up far earlier than I remember in this episode. My my memory seemed to believe that he showed up as the cliffhanger, but he shows up pretty early, and he, as you say, Don, he bosses the scene every time he's there. And he seems very comfortable playing that kind of sleuth, the the, the Columbo, the Perot, if you will. So. He was very good in that role, but then he was like, I'm going to make Susan and Barbara my detectives, and I was like, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> So. And then I think I think when he, when he was giving up everyone uh, <laughs> giving everyone assignments, I thought it was really funny when Ian's like, well, "What can I do?" <laughs> it's like you can sit in that jail and rot for now because there's nothing you can do. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I was thinking about this episode, and I and the thing that <laughs> struck me was the murder weapon. A mace was such an odd choice, but then I realized why Terry Nation chose a mace. It's because of that's where the key is hidden. So, just going back to the murderer, Susan and Barbara, in their detective roles, go to talk to him and his wife. His wife, Carla, by the way, has amazing hair. <laughs> Absolutely phenomenal. She is played by Fiona Walker, who will actually return to Doctor Who all the way in the Sylvester McCoy era as Lady Painfort, who's also a wonderfully villainous woman. You can almost say she's being typecast. But the character's husband, he's a woman beater. He hits her. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's true, yeah. I had forgotten that, and I was sitting there going, wait, what? Yeah, I was not okay. I was just like, why, why is this happening? I mean, I guess it was to once again portray him as just a thoroughly nasty guy. Yeah, it made me very, very uncomfortable. And her husband, Aiden, on top of being a woman beater, is just an utter moron. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are two occasions where he uh, he basically gives himself away. Uh, it's like, dude, what are you doing? Credit to Barbara, but she uh, but she makes a the, the classic blunder of the. Oh, I'm sorry you haven't been able to find out anyone who, about who, who's holding Susan. And when Susan, I, when, when excuse me, uh, yeah, when Susan talked to you, and then it's only until later they're like, wait a minute, how does she know that Susan talked to us? You know, it's like, what type of villain are you? We're starting to see something that's another Terry Nation trope, and that's the villain giving themselves away. We'll see it again when we get to the Daleks' master plan. He likes to do that a lot. It kind of just makes you feel that the villains aren't particularly well written. Since we've already progressed into the Keys of Marinus, let's sum up this episode. So the Doctor fails to prove Ian's innocence, and he and Ian get sentenced to death in a scene that is incredibly light in dramatic tension. And then Susan's gonna Susan, and she gets herself kidnapped. You cliffhanger. 
in the sentence of death, they do find they do get that ad- admittance uh, as he's trying to escape of setting up Ian. Oh, uh, Aiden. Yes, Aiden. And what I thought was really interesting about it was that as he's trying to leave, the mob like holds him. Once again, there was Barbara. She was right on him, tackled him like a linebacker. She was but right she, in yes, there. Yes, she was. She was. She was like, get over here. Conventional fan wisdom has it that Ian was the original hero of the show and not the Doctor. Can we all agree that actually conventional wisdom is wrong and Barbara is the hero of the show? I would say Barbara is the hero of the show and just Barbara is the person that keeps everyone together as, as like a, a functional unit and she saves the day continually. So, we move into episode 6, Ease of Marinus. We start with knowledge of Susan's kidnapping becoming apparent to Barbara, who does everything she can to protect the Doctor from this knowledge and make sure he doesn't know because she doesn't want him to freak out and lose sight of trying to save Ian. Which I think says a lot about how awesome Barbara is and having priorities straight. I'm going to save Susan, the Doctor's going to continue to try and save Ian. And she goes off to speak to Carla. Carla gives away that she knows Susan spoke to Barbara, which she shouldn't know if she was innocent. And Barbara, of course, comes to the realization that it was Carla all along. And she comes to the rescue. As that scene, as Carla is, you know, just, you know, standing over Susan and laughing. And you can see in the background... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's just kind of comedic to see then like Barbara and Altus and Sabitha like show up behind her. And once Susan's rescued, I think we have the first or at least one of the few occasions so far where Susan's crying is actually completely understandable. You know, she's been through a hell of an, or- an ordeal and she's left sobbing at the end of it. And I was like, yeah, this makes sense. I probably would be too in that scenario. So they're at a point where they can now try and prove Ian's innocence. And of course, Carla just turns around and claims that Ian was working with her the whole time. The whole notion of a guilty until proved innocent society is, I mean, it's, it sounds like such a simple reversal, but it just seems so wrong. So, of course, we get some dramatic tension in the countdown to Ian's execution, and then the Doctor swoops in and saves the day. We have the Doctor being a hero here, which I don't think he really has been for the most part. It's been Barbara most of the time, occasionally Ian, but the Doctor is finally stepping up to the plate. I know there wasn't a lot of love for these couple of episodes as we descended into law and order territory, so who's glad when we leave? We get to see more Vord! <laughs> we do. Before we move on to the Vord, though, and I'm reluctant to speak too much, but we do get another first, which I think was the first time the Doctor claims to meet a historical figure off-screen, and he claims to have met Pyrrho. Didn't he claim that the coat he gave Barbara just before he went into Marco Polo was given to him by someone famous? Oh, possibly. I might have missed that. So we are back on, does it have a name? Arbitan's Island? Is that just what we call it? Arbitron. <laughs> Arbitan of Arbitron. And yes, Julie, we get more Vord. But this time they have a cunning plan. In the most baldric <laughs> sense of the phrase, yes. <laughs> oh, I do love your excitement about seeing them again, Julie, because, you know, the, the production team actually thought, right, we're getting Terry Nation back. We're getting Ray Cusick working with him. We're going to get another monster that's going to be as popular as the Daleks. <laughs> and they give us the board. Nothing more terrifying than a villain in a gimp suit. <laughs> but we'll get to the caves of Androzani later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Julie, you have so much to look forward to. But that's not until the 1980s. Oh, that's going to be years from now. So, the sight of Yartek in Arbitan's robes. <laughs> How dare he? I, I just love how he's like, I'm going to put the hood up over my headdress and <laughs> no one's going to notice. This, like, is, this don't, is a good oh, Don't, don't my... worry. I'll, I'll use, I'll do the whole, I'm feeling really sick. Don't get close excuse. <laughs> uh, I'm not a different height. My voice doesn't sound any different. It's everything's fine. What I used to do when I tried to call in to school sick and pretend I was my mom. You you dressed up in a gimp suit? (laughs) (laughs) While making the phone call, yes. Way to commit to the bit. One thing about Yartek is when he's talking about the rest of the board, he doesn't call them my people, he calls them my creatures. I like that. Which I thought was a 
really interesting turn of phrase. It is. It's, uh, I, I like the little tidbits like that where the, the viewer can uh, fill in their own little backstory. Yeah, and in time, the extended, expanded universe of Doctor Who, the comics and the audios go pretty wild with the board. I think one of the comic strips eventually has them evolving into Cybermen. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I personally prefer them as fetishists. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I think we're about to get to the, the, the conclusion of our writer's tropes, which is the final exchange of the MacGuffin, where you're led to believe that the MacGuffin has been transferred to the villains, when in fact they've been given a fake one, and that is their downfall. And then the, the MacGuffin explodes. Yes. Which I would yes. consider design flaw of the machine. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would think it just wouldn't work. You, it's like a car. Just If you took someone else's keys and tried to put them in your car and start your car, it wouldn't explode, <laughs> would it? Apparently, you if it's designed know. by Arbitron, then yes, it will. <laughs> so it explodes. And then we have, uh, once again, we get that lovely miniature work of the pyramid and the TARDIS. Yep. There was a, a comment that the doctor made at the very end where he was making a suggestion of saying that man should not be ruled by machines. It's nice that he finally does that six episodes in. Well, this was a dumb idea anyway. So much for that. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone else notice just as they're about to leave and get into the TARDIS, there's just a moment between Ian and Barbara that I felt was the first kind of suggestion of romance between the two. Is that just me shipping them? There's a little bit of cutesiness there. And then we're done. Before we get into our roundup, we want to do some metrics. I believe Julie has the overall Susan freakout count so far. For this particular serial, six. So, and actually what was interesting is in the final episode, there was no hysterics, which... I found very surprising. Well, we averaged one an episode for this serial. She actually avoids doing it in the last one. Yes. That's good to know. Even in the second to last one, she wasn't as dramatic as she could have been. So the next one we have is the Ian murder count. I, I think he's clean, this serial. Despite being on trial for murder. For, for it, exactly. It's like they knew about his previous acts. I know. I, I want to count the stitch up as an Ian murder, <laughs> just for humor's sake. So... We had Ian pushing the Thal off the ledge in the Daleks. We had the guard that Ian found dead in Marco Polo that I've decided he clearly killed, even though it was allegedly the bandits. And then we have this guard in Millennius, who Ian supposedly found already dead, but I'm not convinced. And then our final metric, which is one that will actually be able to run through the entire show, is the camp count so the number of times we've had something happen or a character who is overtly camp and this one hasn't gone up so so far we're we're at two we're at the the guy in the very first episode who says oh yes <laughs> and uh the overly camp character from marco polo the, the very flamboyant chap who who welcomes them to that one town and with that we're going to do the vote slightly differently this week rather than me recommending a measurement we're going to let everyone choose their own so ideally out of 10 but if don really wants to count out of 500 again that is fine riley what can i say you know i i, I love the change of locations i i love the how each episode it's almost like you get three or four mini stories for the price of one the bookends aren't really a, the, the strongest feature of the entire serial, but it's still a lot of fun. I know that we've been like making fun of it, but man, I really love this serial. When I watched it the first time, I remember just just really enjoying being just different locations, different things, different little you know scenarios. It wasn't like something where it was just like we're going to keep on this one thing for the entire time. It's like you know constant change, very fun. I would give it 9 out of 10 Super Mario levels. Fantastic. Julie? I am going to do my count on the board, as apparently I'm a huge fan. Uh, <laughs> for better or for worse, I really don't know. <laughs> so I'll go with 7.5. And I think really one of the reasons why I'm giving it a bit lower than Riley is just it. It slowed down really, really 
really far for me. Just that second to last episode, the sentence of death, I couldn't get on board with it. Everything up to that point was really fun. And then it was just a whole dynamic change. Um, So that kind of ruined it for me a little bit there. But beginning was really fun. There were some creepy moments. You know, there were some times when it's like, yes, I want to take a shower. (laughs) 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 And that was both from, you know, creepy guy who's afraid of all the wolves and from the board themselves. So 7.5. All right, Don? I am going to have to rate this in gimp suits because I, I simply have no choice. I think this serial starts out incredibly strong. Um, the key word here is fun. It's a fun serial. And I think one of the things that makes it fun is that the characters are really starting to gel and you're, you're just more than willing to go with them on this ride. Yeah, there are some problems with it. It slows down almost to a halt at the end. There's some really squicky moments in in the snows of terror, but overall, I enjoyed it a lot. I'm giving it eight gimp suits out of ten. I am subtracting one point because Barbara didn't take the dead Vord suit. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. And I'm going to be very predictable and rate out of the number of keys of Marinus. Personally, I thought that the first three episodes were really, really fun. Episode four felt very nasty. And then episode five, as you said, was kind of eh, a little on the dull side. And then episode six picked up the pace a little for me. So I'm actually going to give this three and a half keys of Marinus. So on a scale of 10, that's that's seven. The whole Snows of Terror episode just made me feel so uncomfortable it's not as someone who's been a very long-term viewer of Doctor Who it's not what the program's about for me and yes I want it to deal with real world issues to some extent but in such a with such a character where I'm just left feeling pretty upset by it all it, it really lost some some points for me because of that before we wrap up does this extreme division of the story into what is effectively four stories that are bookended by scenes on Arbitran, <laughs> Arbitan's island. Does, does that work? I, I really, I love it. yeah. I love it. I think it's great. I mean, I feel like there were so many times in previous serials that we talked about how it's like, all right, well, they're really stretching it here. This could have been cut by two episodes. Here, we don't have that problem because each episode is its own little mini story. So you don't have to, there's, there's no waste here. I agree with that. I just, it had the one weak spot with, you know, Ian on trial. Otherwise, I actually agree with it being broken up like that actually lent itself to less filler. Yeah. Is this something you guys would want to see more regularly? Would you want every week to be, or every serial to be this? kind of highly serialized format or or would you prefer to see it depends on the story and of course we know we're going to get more of this later i think that there's a i mean it really i agree with don it it really depends on the story i feel like if you're if you're not going to give us many stories or a little mini quest if you're going to keep us on one basic conflict then at best you can max it out at about four episodes but if you're going to go more than four episodes you've got to do something different you've got to change it up as a final thought we've talked a lot about the video game nature of this story and in the little history piece at the beginning i talked about how the first program written in basic was run while the story was being aired so we're long before video games are a thing i think this is really terry nation being very far ahead of his time i think what it is is a combination of taking standard writing tropes combined with like basic plot devices and then being on a rush schedule it has that feel of a video game and i think that's just the combination of you know him being paint by numbers for the serial and combined with the little things that we recognize as elements of video games i mean arbitron might as well be like the classic npc character with like a glowing like halo over him that they find like we should talk to this guy i actually think it's genius i really do because to the point i made it 
predates what we're used to as video games by basically 20 years, I think, is when you first start really seeing the text-based ones would have been in the early 80s. Yeah. I just think it's so smart. Thank you to everyone who's been listening. We are the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. Join us next time when we will be talking about the Aztecs. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Philippak, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Supermarinus Brothers, was recorded on Wednesday, the 9th of January, 2019. And always remember, sending people on quests is always much more entertaining when you know exactly where all the traps are and deliberately decide not to tell them.